Welcome to the Hurricane Labs podcast. I'm Heather, and today we're going to be talking about log for shell So joining me, I have Tony, Josh, and Kurt. Thanks, guys, for you know taking some time with all of this craziness to talk to me today. Let's just go ahead and dive right in. So uh, CVSS rated this vulnerability as a 10 out of 10, which sounds like it might be a little bad. Uh, why is this? What, what's going on with this vulnerability? Why is it uh, that this is so serious? First off, the attack surface is gigantic. You know, every time when you go to install the latest version of the JRE and uh, Java threateningly tells you that there are billions of devices running Java, uh, this is one of those cases where, yes, there's billions of devices running Java and a lot of them in enterprise environments where they're running critical applications that we have to be responsible for are using Log4j2. So it's this open source logging library that was developed by the Apache Software Foundation um, and is maintained by a handful of, uh, uh, of individuals who are just kind of uh, doing it as uh, a charity or, you know, just like most open source applications are kind of just doing it for the fun of it. But it has more or less become the logging standard for Java applications. Uh, so the issue that we're seeing in uh, Log4j2 has to do with functionality called uh, lookups. It's a way for Java applications to kind of um, refer to uh, variables or insert uh, certain formatted data into the logs. Um, and in particular, we're, um, this vulnerability is most concerned with JNDI lookups, which is the Java naming and directory interface. It's a way for lookups to make requests through different protocols, the most common ones being um, LDAP and DNS, but there are a couple of others out there. So we have this massive attack surface. We have this functionality to do DNS lookups. Uh, what else can be done with that? Well, um, depending on what version of Java you have running, um, you can run a malicious LDAP server and you can tell the Java application when it goes to do the LDAP lookup, hey, I have this class file over here that will totally help you get what you want. And um, it's definitely not malicious and trust me, and it will go ahead and load it. Um, in other cases, when you do these DNS requests, uh, the attacker could stand up a DNS server and um, you can format the JNDI request to send environment variables with that DNS request. So, so it's like a part of the uh, DNS query. So if the attacker owns a domain and sets up an authoritative DNS server for that domain, they see those queries. So in Cloud environments, especially where you have environment variables that define secrets, that define usernames and passwords, that's kind of a big deal because now they're just logging your credentials uh, in your cloud instances. And then um, aside from you know the DNS issue and aside from uh, the malicious LDAP issue, you also have problems where uh, different applications have things called gadgets in them. When you uh, set up a Java application, there are libraries and libraries have a variety of functions, of course. And some of these functions might not be a part of the application you're using, but they're still there and they can be leveraged by attackers to get code execution anyway. So that's where the big deal is, is that you have all of these different methods of exploitation in combination with a massive attack surface. 
Yep, and that one, that's what makes it hard to detect too, because you have those multiple different methods, you know, so there's a lot of potential for obfuscation with this from using environment variables. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's another thing that like a lot of people are um, putting in. I, I want to say the Sophos blog mentioned it, uh, Cloudflare's blog mentioned it when they were talking about exploitation attempts. It's really hard to formulate proper queries and blacklist for this because it's very easy to create workarounds and obfuscate the um, JNDI lookup. How are we seeing it being exploited right now? Uh, well, again, I've seen a couple of researchers posting um, instances where attackers are requesting AWS secret access keys um, as a part of the lookup. And then in other cases where you have uh, Java applications that are running old versions of the JDK, it can just be told to go pick up a malicious Java class file and that gives you code execution. Those are the primary methods I've been seeing. Yeah, and I've usually seen the scanning coming from HTTP user agent headers, sometimes API keys, and like the payloads in those, uh, mostly being coin miners at the moment, but I'm sure that'll evolve. I already saw a few things for you know ransomware spawning from all of this as well, so I'm sure it's just a matter of time, Josh, till it starts getting really messy. You know, the scariest thing about all of this is that there is a variety of different ways you can go about attacking it, and you know, uh, for the most part, you know, we're monitoring network activity, of course, you know, those HTTP headers and URI strings, but potentially anywhere where you can input data into a Java application and it's logged by the uh, vulnerable library, that's a, that's a tax surface. And um, an example, uh, I was uh, talking with a couple of other security researchers over social media. Let's use a, a really strange example and say, what if you had, say, a Proxmark card and you decided to encode the JNDI string into your card? You go to scan um, the card reader against your card and the um, physical access system is running a vulnerable version of this library and you just exploited it. You know, those are, it's kind of, it's a weird out there kind of attack surface, but it's still valid because if it's running Java and it ex and it logs uh, that access attempt, then it just does whatever the JNDI lookup tells it to. That you know, that's a potential issue. Yeah, just wherever you're logging and user it, input, you have you have that attack surface. And that's what I was going to say from more of a blue team standpoint. That's why writing detections right now and probably for the future is going to be. No, nearly impossible. We're all, we're always going to be behind the attackers on it because we'll be you know finding the new encodings used, the different you know apps they're throwing it at, and it, regardless, you're going to sit there and kind of cycle and be behind the gap of what we should be looking for from actually a defensive standpoint. What should we be looking for? How do you know if I guess what I'm asking is how do you know if this is being exploited on your system? Yeah, if you have logs that have the JNDI string or some obfuscated version and you can pull out a, an IOC out of that, like a domain or an IP, and you can find return traffic going out LDAP or one of the other protocols that are being exploited, and that's how you can tell if, if something's been successfully exploited. The problem we're seeing, though, from a, from a blue team perspective of it is sometimes being a contractor and looking across multiple clients, you know, logging each client's different, and sometimes they... they have the logs or the firewall logs to actually see potential return traffic where depending on the what kind of host you're attacking, what software it's running, it, it may not even be getting logged for what you're trying to monitor with. Will this vulnerability be fixed or is it something that is always going to have to be 
kind of kept up with. So that's probably another one of the gross parts. Yeah, it's probably one of the more gross things about oh, it is yeah. the fact that this isn't going away for probably years. Like, for example, we're still seeing Eternal Blue way back when one Wanna Cry became a thing still in everyday activity and still actually being successful and exploiting. Um, in my opinion, the Log4J stuff's going to be worse than Eternal Blue. At least Windows was able to push the patches out and it was only affecting Windows products. Now, as far as like Log4J goes, it as Tony said, it's it's anything that's running the Log4J2 library within Java. And you could use Java to program lots and lots of different applications. Um, and and the, the biggest thing to note is that some of the, for example, like I know, um, wasn't it Newbecker? I think you could recall, wasn't it not CrowdStrike, but Carbon Black? Yeah, Carbon Black. And I, I know that they're actually were vulnerable to the attack. And let's say if you're a corporate environment using Carbon Black, that's out of your control. You're, you're, you're at, you're waiting for Carbon Black to fix it. And there's really not much you can do from your end as far as waiting for the vulnerability to get patched. But on the flip side, you might also have software that some dev made in your environment 10 years ago that's been outdated for the last eight and you don't even know it exists. Um, the, the tech surf is just massive. I could probably talk in circles more, but <laughs> I, yeah, I can't like, see it going away anytime soon. Yeah, like to add to that, you know, kind of what he just said, it's the same deal. Like these are, Java's been used for an incredibly long time and there are a variety of different verticals out there that might have Java, Java applications as a part of their core workflow, you know, that they might rely on these applications and the people that made them, uh, the companies that developed the software for them, they might be out of business, they might have moved on, the developer might have moved on or something might have happened to them. Um, and then there's the fact that, you know, it's considered, it, you might have this, uh, might have Java applications in critical infrastructure as well, you know, um, talking about uh, power generation or um, other critical infrastructure out there, you know, it's a big deal to get stuff patched in those environments because, you know, there's not real, you have to have multiple backup plans in order to be able to handle failures. You know, if, it's not, if a patch fails to work properly or if the um, application is updated and it doesn't work the exact same way, then you need to have a uh, detailed backup plan on what you're going to do to work around that. So a lot of the time, uh, companies that are working in critical infrastructure or companies that have a particular workflow and no way to update the program without significant funds being put into it, they'll just stop to not update it, you know? So that's the other thing that's kind of gross about this is that it's kind of just the term I've heard used before is it's a forever day vulnerability. It's always going to be there it's in those places that just don't have the option to update. And I like how you put, I like the forever day exploit because it's it's totally true and then it's really not going away. And the the add on what you said, Tony, that I think is really important, like how when you have critical infrastructure running per se Java that is vulnerable, if I'm not mistaken, you have to update to Java eight plus at this point even to patch for log4j. And in that case, you might have to rewrite your code and make things actually, you might have to do complete rewrites on code. So let alone having to make some small tweaks or something that might take a long time for places that need like 99.5% uptime. 
What about this cyber reason vaccine is a fix? Are we not going to ignore how cheesy it is saying vaccinate now to a signature? I'm sorry, but that's so dumb. <laughs> okay, now that I got that out of me. Um... <laughs> Tell us how you read yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the vaccine, huh? This is like a the fix like uses a white the vulnerability board, right? itself to set the flag that turns it off. So I wouldn't really call this a uh, vaccine for say so much as it's a mitigation. And um, I've actually been doing a little bit of research on the mitigations out there. So what the blog post is suggesting is that they have a tool that will exploit the log4j vulnerability and then it will um, either set the environment variable format message no lookups to true or it will restart the program and use the log4j2 format message no lookups argument. And what that does is that th that disables lookups including JNDI lookups entirely for your application. Now, on the one hand, <clears throat> on the one hand, that's that will fix the biggest issue of the um, LDAP server being able to tell your application go down download this totally legitimate .class file that I have over here. Trust me, it's not malicious. But the other issues of logging those DNS queries, or the other problem that I mentioned, or and. The, the other problem with the uh, DNS queries, that's still an issue, uh, regardless of whether or not you use this uh, quote unquote vaccine. But uh, the other problem that you run into is that the LDAP uh, resource ref method that I'm talking about that points it to that class file, that's only one of the types of attack available. Um, I think I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but uh, the idea of there being gadgets in the application or portions of a library that could be utilized to get code execution. Um, those are still going to be a problem even with this um, even with this uh, vaccine or this uh, mitigation method that cyber reason is suggesting. So it's better than doing nothing, but the best method is you know obviously patching it. like the, the mitigation methods that I've seen are, using the uh, format message no lookups uh, option if it's available in your application, um, updating the JDK version or the JRE that you're using to something that doesn't allow the, um, there's a feature called uh, trust URL code base and that's what allows the uh, application to take that class file and download it. And older versions of the JDK, it's set to true and it'll happily load whatever class file you give it. Um, in newer versions of the JDK, that's set to false. Again, that doesn't really do anything if you are um, using the gadget method or if you found gadgets in the libraries being used in your application to do code execution. Um, so of course, then you fall back to uh, defense in depth techniques. That's uh, looking for um, Java spawning unusual processes, unusual files being dropped to disk, um, being able to block egress or being able to do egress filtering for your application servers or noticing that they're suddenly requesting doing HTTP request the port 8888, you know, when that's not a normal thing that they do. Uh, so those are some more mitigation and remediation methods. It's just uh, like we always say in um, 
you know, with the blue team is that it's defense in depth, it's layers of an onion, it's uh, overlapping defenses. Yeah, and I believe this vaccine um, is also dependent on how the how it's being exploited too, depending on like where you're entering that that string and how it's being logged in that application. It may not cover everything, just the most common. So just to ask you guys, what, what would be your thoughts on the best way to find vulnerable instances of log4j in your environment? I mean, at the end of the day, you do have to find where it exists internally, but does anyone know uh, offhand? It's going to be the unsexy answer that everybody hates, but it's uh, having um, be, being able to do asset management and software management in your enterprise. Um, this is one of those things that's it's much easier to tell people to do it than it is to do it, than to actually do it. You know, uh, I'm going to be devil's advocate that you know let's be the average company that totally didn't do it, doesn't have it. Well, what would be your steps? Uh, start with vulnerability file. scanners and hope for the best. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, the, honestly, though, that's probably the first yeah. answer is like your first la your first line of defense is to take advantage of your vulnerability uh, uh, vulnerability management program in internally or using vulnerability scanners to at least test most of your web applications to see whether or not you get results that you weren't expecting. I, I totally agree that having the assets all put together is obviously going to be your easiest way, but I just was being the, almost everywhere I look, it's, I've never seen, I think a complete thing of assets at any client ever. I mean, and then you also have the, uh, the point of view that um, a lot of these appliances uh, both security appliances and IT appliances, they might be running Java under the hood. And until you get that security advisory and you get whatever official patch that they offer for it, you're not going to be able to do anything with it. That's fair too. I mean, I think that goes back to, you know, should we keep running things that are critical, knowing that it's able to get exploited or do we you know, tear the thing down and try fixing it? But like you said, if there's no patch available for them, you can't really do anything. Probably most people are going to choose to keep things running. Yeah, keep it running and make sure that it's uh, being monitored, you know, as consistently as you can until such a time comes that you can hopefully fix it. Yep, and restrict access where you can. Mm -hmm. I was on like a DMZ or subnetted away from everything else so if they do get compromised you're not having well that and this this requires um a public service to be affected um to be exploited from the internet that is uh, would require public service to to be available uh, if, you, if you have something internally that's vulnerable to this and it's on the internet and doesn't need to be implementing firewall whitelisting would be a good option that's a good point all right, so let's talk a little bit about how this was disclosed. Um, it was shared publicly on GitHub, right? So I'm wondering um, if, you know, ide identifying this vulnerability in that way didn't do more damage. Um, kind of seems to me now like it's like a sort of this crazy scramble where, you know, security teams are, are trying to race hackers, by, you know, patching versus exploiting. But it's also pretty pervasive. So I'm wondering, did a better way to disclose this vulnerability exist? Would have been nice if it was a Monday. <laughs> right that's yeah. the probably most accurate <laughs> and and not right before a holiday oh yeah that always happens i, mean, I swear that that's always how it goes like i remember uh with the uh sunburst stuff like it happened like right around this time um last year like at the beginning of this year that, that was a uh, a mad scramble as well but like 
to play on your question there, you know, normally normal disclosure is you have 30 days or the vendor has 30 days to fix it. And then people will start looking at the patches since log4j is an open source project and it's on GitHub. You can just see the changes. You're like, huh, I wonder why they disabled lookups. And then everybody just goes, oh, oh, okay. But to, you know, an another point to make is that uh, we mentioned earlier, Eternal Blue has been a thing for a couple of years now. And Microsoft was really on the ball with that, making sure that that got patched as soon as they were aware of it. And the patch was available before um, any of the exploits uh, from the kit were publicly available. And still to this day, we're seeing the problems, but would it have reduced the attack service? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I said they even pushed XP patches when they stopped even patching XP at that point. I mean, Microsoft did a great job making sure that they could help people with the issues. I mean, on the one hand, it would have been nice to get the advanced warning. And on the other hand, um, as we've mentioned, the Log4J2, um, it's an open source project. And my understanding is that there's like three people running it. Um, they don't get any funding. And it was kind of like a just a project for them, you know? So I... I'd have to believe that they're doing the best that they can right now. Tony, do you think there is a better, kind of like what uh, Heather asked, do you think there is a better way than just, you know, kind of publicly announcing the issue? I mean, since it's open source, I understand probably why that's the route that was taken on it, but. So, so how many people would you tell? Yeah, yeah like so you go and try to, to find every place where, where this, you don't, you don't know. I mean, it forces people to fix it, which I definitely think is good considering it's open source and used everywhere, but. I mean, on the other hand, um, sometimes it isn't always a direct jump between we've made these code changes to this is the vulnerable function. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the speculative execution thing in Ghost uh, from a while back. Um, a lot of people were asking like why certain versions of the Linux kernel or certain updates to Mac OS, why they were disabling speculative execution. And then all, and then why are these Intel execs uh, dumping all of their stocks? And then like a week later, we find out about ghosts and we find out about all these problems with how speculative execution works. And, you know, so, you know, the normal, the typical method of, you know, disclosing vulnerabilities is that you um, do the responsible disclosure thing. Either you talk to Google Project Zero or you talk to the vendor and you give them X number of days or, and hopefully they have a patch by then. And then you wait until the patch is public to kind of discuss your findings. It might've reduced the attack service uh, a little bit, but you know, this is the world that we live in and um, it's not illegal to drop zero days on GitHub yet. So um, this is uh, kind of what we had to deal with. I, I say yet I appreciate because the yet. Um, there were uh, cases where like with proxy shell where people were trying to put proof of concepts for the um, exchange vulnerabilities and Microsoft was taking them down almost immediately because they own GitHub. You know, th that's kind of what I was just saying to there is like, I don't want it to be illegal. You know, it's security research. No, that's what we have to do. That's a whole different ramble that that goes down a rabbit hole of, you know, third parties having the ability to complete monitor what's posted in there. And but that's not the point of this. Yeah, there's a whole other can of worms. Oh, yeah. Strong feelings on that one. But it that totally could cause problems. So let's say something came out about Microsoft, Tony, and now 
you know, people are trying to get it out there on GitHub and anything, and they're just instantly removing it because they have every right to. I mean, there's other platforms to push it to, but either way, I won't derail us. <laughs> what about the 2016 Black Hat? Was this vulnerability talked about then? Well, uh, to some extent it was. When we talk about uh, those deserialization vulnerabilities, that's kind of the research that was going on at the time. Um, uh, I got a slide deck together that I'm putting together for a video and I kind of uh, linked or I set up a couple of different resources where it was a uh, JNDI was known attack surface. So I got a couple of guys here. Um, one of them was uh, Chris Frohoff and the uh, Why So Serial research that he did. Um, Alvaro Munoz and uh, Alexander Miroš, uh, which was the Black Hat talk that you're referring to. And then uh, Moritz Beckler and the um, Marshall Sec tool and uh, Java on Marshaller security. So those were like the big pieces of research that um, really kind of opened up this whole can of worms into um, being able to use it existing gadgets and uh, Java libraries and um, the whole idea of using the LDAP uh, attack surface to kind of force applications to load class files. Um, so yeah, this has been known uh, known issue for a number of years now, probably maybe even before uh, the Black Hat talk. But um, yeah, the thing is, is that uh, nobody really knew it was attack surface in um, log4j2 because nobody really expected there to be the functionality to do lookups. I mean, it's just a logging library. You wouldn't really expect that to be there. Before we wrap up here today, um, Josh, I think you wanted to talk about something else that you're seeing. Uh, something that's come up with um, some of these uh, like scanners where they patch the vulnerability, like the vaccine, like people turning that into uh, uh, an anti-worm to go and to go and patch things. And um, I believe there's efforts out there, like using that same type of code to, to to write worms to spread it as well. See, the only concern though, I could like, I think at the core of that, it's meant to be proactive and help people. Obviously, I don't think the intentions of that are malicious by any means. But if we go back to when Tony was talking about critical infrastructures and stuff. And then tie it to when I was talking about, you know, you probably have to update your Java and stuff to even maybe patch for log4j. Like, I mean, you take all that into consideration. Let's say a worm gets into your environment and starts patching stuff that needs to be running, but now it starts crashing and failing, all because someone was attempting to, you know, patch your environment for you and help re resolve the problem. But in return, they just made everything a living hell for you. Yeah, none of that is good all around. Although in this case, like the wormability of this isn't as bad as something like Eternal Blue, where it's it's one exploit that can be scanned for and exploited the same way everywhere. At least in, in this case, um, it depends on what application you're running and, and what the attack service is and how it's exploited. Gotcha. I haven't read too far into how they're... It'd be, kind of it'd be hard to write a, a a worm that would affect everything. And that's the, the same problem with things like the, vac like the vaccine thing with the scanner, where it's it's only going to work in some some cases. What's really interesting is that uh, there are parallels that can be drawn between this and uh, Shellshock. There was um, a couple of uh, different campaigns when Shellshock came around that were tar targeting um, network attached storage devices where they would exploit Shellshock, get on the system, patch the vulnerability, set up a backdoor, and then start attacking another system and keep doing the same thing over and over again. So I just thought that it was 
pretty interesting the suggestion about uh it being wormable so we, we definitely have seen that in the past all right well thank you guys for joining me today i really appreciate you taking the time that's all we have for now we'll be keeping an eye out for updates as information about this vulnerability develops do be sure to check out our links we've included a few resources for you to learn more until next time stay safe <laughs>